Hey, hey guys. Welcome back to our second full episode, so our third total episode of Chasing Heroin on the Stay Recovery Podcast. My name is Janine. My name's Kimberly Walker. And today we are going to get into, well, actually, first of all, we both want to say thank you so much. The support that we've already received and the attention that this podcast has received already is actually like kind of mind-blowing to me. Um, We haven't done a whole lot of promotion, mostly because I'm scared, (laughs) which hopefully I'll get over. But um, I'm shocked at the, just the numbers that are, that are already coming back. So thank you guys so much for listening and any feedback. If you listen on iTunes, if you could rate and review it also, that would be way, way helpful. Yeah. Loving the, the text feedback we're getting. Yes. Um, But definitely if you could put it on there, that would be great and help us out. Yes, that would be great. Thank you guys so much. Okay, so today is a little bit less of a crazy story and more of a conversation that I had, but it was really life-changing for me, this thing that this guy said to me, and I repeat it now, I share it all the time in meetings, and it's just really powerful, and he said it so off the cuff, I don't know if maybe one day he'll listen to this, he might, Mm -hmm. but you should know that it was very helpful. Anyways, um, okay, so... In LA, I had two long-term boyfriends, the second long-term boyfriend. So I lived in Venice with this guy for three years and he tried so hard to make this life a good one Mm -hmm. and got us into this really cute cottage in Venice. And when we met, we were both kind of partying and I think it became clear to him that I had more of a problem than he was aware of after I moved in with him. Mm Mm-hmm. So basically the, the, you know, the gist of it was he wanted me to quit doing Coke. He was fine with me drinking cause he was a pretty big drinker himself okay. actually, but he wanted me to quit doing Coke and I, and I, and I couldn't mm-hmm. and no amount of, and I like really cared about this guy. I, I really, really, really did. And for some reason I just could not, I, I knew he was getting so upset with me and I could not quit using anyway. I just couldn't. And it was completely unrelated to our relationship and how I felt. I just couldn't stop using. Yeah. And did you start to think, Ooh, is there a problem or? Oh yeah. No, at that point I believed I had a a problem, but I wasn't sure what to do about it. In fact, I remember I found out that this girl, so this is also when I got into, and that this should be a whole other episode, how I got into teaching, Mm -hmm. but I was working the front desk at a yoga and spin studio in Venice. Mm -hmm. And I'd gotten certified as part of like working at the desk And this girl that worked out there, I had heard that she was in recovery. And I remember asking her about it. And I asked her, like, what to do. And she recommended that I go to AA. And I had heard of AA. And I wanted nothing to do with Alcoholics Anonymous or the 12 Steps or being abstinent. Because what I really didn't want was, I believed I had a coke problem, but I did not think that I had an alcohol problem. So you thought, if I start going to AA, I won't be able to drink and I won't have a problem. And then I won't have a life. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. And I, and I had zero interest for a long time in not drinking. That's actually pretty recent that I agreed. Like it wouldn't like in the last episode we were talking about when I met my first sponsor Mm -hmm. and she was saying the, a regular person doesn't accidentally get strung out on heroin. Mm -hmm. It was only at those times that I started to shape my view of my, of the past as like, okay, I, I did already have a problem before I was on heroin. I, yeah. I did drink too much. You know? Right. I mean, and I, I think that's probably a pretty common thing, that idea of... It totally is. Of, what will I do then? What will I do? Like, what will I do? How do I have fun? What do All people do? All of my do? friends drink. We go out to yes. bars. Like, that yes. idea of 
there will be nothing to do that. Yeah. And that's, that was my primary fear. And I think that's most people's primary fear. I'm sure. You know? So yeah, absolutely. That stopped me from getting into AA. And also I thought like, when you go on a date, you typically go out for drinks mm-hmm. and like, how am I going to ever date somebody? Cause it was clear that this relationship with this guy probably <laughs> wasn't going to last mm-hmm. based on my behavior. So anyway, at some point in our relationship and it was around August, September of 2008, mm-hmm. we were living together in Venice and he was over my bullshit mm-hmm. completely. And I kept promising him that I would quit using and I didn't. And I was like, of, of all of my using, this was the messiest these years. It's actually, I'm a lot of what happened in San Diego and North County, San Diego. I was so deep in the using community. It was only other use like addicts that knew what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But in LA, I was still in the regular world with regular people. And LA remains to this day, like the most embarrassed I am still of my behavior because those people were not addicts. They were not living this way. And I was just a terrain wreck for the last three (laughs) years. Like I would get drunk and cry and like go in our backyard and call my ex before him Mm -hmm. and talk to him all night. Like not anything bad that that guy actually had a girlfriend. We're still really good friends, but um, I would go talk to him. It was just awful. And like sit in our backyard. Anyways. So I don't remember what led to this particular converse, this particular argument. I think he had caught me again doing coke. I remember I was sitting on his lap once and he looked down and I had a bag he like sticking out of my mm-hmm. jeans pockets. Because you had kind of told him I'm not doing it Absolutely. Okay. I claimed all the time to not be doing it. Mm-hmm. And I would sleep in our living room because he snored really loud. Mm-hmm. And so I would, I would say that that was why I was sleeping in the living room and then I would just like do coke all night by myself. It was mm-hmm. awful. So he had caught me again and we had some sort of fight and I remember standing in the kitchen of this cute little cottage that we had in Venice and I remember so clearly this moment was like burned in my brain, the conversation that we had. And I remember saying to him, I was like, look, dude, you are really overreacting right now. You are blowing this way out of proportion. It's not like, and this is interesting that I said this. I was, I said, it's not like I'm shooting fucking heroin, right? Yeah. I've never been arrested. Mm-hmm. I still have my job. You know, it's just a little coke. And I really think that you're, you're blowing this out of proportion. It's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. And he'd been yelling at me. And I remember he just stopped and kind of froze and looked at me. Mm-hmm. And I watched him give up, you know. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know what you mean? You're right. You're right. None of that stuff has happened. None of that stuff has happened. And you're slick enough. You could probably go the rest of your life without ever getting arrested or losing your job. You could probably do that. But you're always gonna be sick three days out of seven, always calling out of work, about to get fired. It's always gonna be kind of weird with your dad because he kind of knows, but you don't want him to know and it devastates you. You're always gonna be broke. But the worst part is you'll have to live your life knowing you're not the woman you were supposed to be. But you're right. You could do that. Yikes. Yeah. That gave me chills. I'm getting chills right now. I'm kind of speechless, I think. It's just, and and I, he's a writer. (laughs) But that just rolled off his tongue. And again, honestly, if you're listening to this, let me know. I I hope he hears this one day because I share it all the time. And if I could ever make an amends to him, it would be that, that those words that he said to me in anger have been very powerful for a lot of addicts. And 
in the moment. And so much of this is stuff that I realized later. Of course. But it obviously hit me because I remember it verbatim. And he left. He walked out of the house. And I still believed, I still believed that he was blowing things out of proportion. I did. I still believed it when he said that. Mm -hmm. But all the other things that he said were true. And I knew that. I was always sick. It was always about to get fired. And no, I hadn't gotten arrested yet or anything like that, you know, at this point. But that was true. And the reason this sticks with me now and the way I frame it when I share at meetings now, in particular when I lead HA meetings, heroin anonymous meetings. Getting off Coke, being somebody that did Coke and drank, it's not like super socially acceptable, but it's, it's a little more in the mainstream right. than being someone getting people off People call it a party drug or... Totally. Most people have done it. Not like my mom, probably. I can picture my mom right now going, I have, you know... <laughs> She'll, of course, and of course Kim has it. You have it? Okay. <laughs> See, I still have, like, adding mentality. I'm like, who hasn't done coke? I mean, no, come on. Funny. I remember and so people are like, uh, I, most people actually have not done I coke. I saw someone doing it once, and I, I was with my ex, and he kind of like tap me stop staring oh my god i was kind of like <laughs> like in the mood i had only seen it in the movie sure sure and i saw but this see, guy roll up money and right. do it and i was like that's really how they do it it's like in the movies <laughs> oh that's awesome <laughs> like jaw to the but floor. see this is what i'm talking about when i said last episode you've already crossed maybe not to do coke i guess but like to do heroin you have crossed some line yes where you're not you okay and you're you know what I mean? When you're like, sure, I'll try that. You know, you're, you're, you've, you've crossed some, I believe that. Yeah. And but there's already there's something going yeah. on with you. So Coke is more socially Coke is more acceptable. More socially acceptable. Exactly. Access, more Lots of people have done it. It's more yeah. accessible. Exactly. We'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. More people have done it. It's more accessible. So coming back from that kind of thing, which I didn't really attempt to do, but later mm-hmm. when I was trying to not be a heroin addict anymore, the stigma attached to that as I was trying to make my way back into the world was pretty horrific Mm -hmm. and one of the key changes in my life and the way that I look at my using came about and I got into this a little bit last week with the gratitude Mm -hmm. and I say this sometimes when I share at meetings so my life in LA like that story I'm telling you right now it was bad but it wasn't heroin bad Mm -hmm. that's a whole different level of bad like the conversation I was having with my ex we were in the house that we lived in I had a car I was about to die Mm -hmm. but I had a car I had a job I just got certified to teach spin Mm -hmm. and it wasn't it wasn't heroin bad Mm -hmm. and I used to think when I was trying to get clean from being a heroin addict that if only I had stopped back then Mm -hmm. that things would have been, you know, that, that things were better back then. And what I came to realize is that I am actually so, what he said was correct. I could have used and managed drinking a little and doing Coke a little for the rest of my life, probably. Mm -hmm. However, what was happening at that time was all those other things. Like I didn't have a savings account. I never had any money. Everything was always a massive emergency. I was not moving forward in my life. And heroin actually forced me to make a choice. Heroin forced my hand. Because the path for me, and I believe this and I know this in my soul, Mm -hmm. 
the path for me is sobriety and a message of hope for other addicts. I really believe that. I feel that to be true. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to do that before. I was never, because like you said, I was slick enough. I could have kept doing coke and drinking forever. Mm -hmm. And then you and I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't own the studio. I never would have stepped into my true place in this world. I would have just been this half addict, half alcoholic for the rest of my life, just kind of trying to eke out this existence. Mm -hmm. And heroin forced me to make a choice and heroin forced me to choose life because that's not what that other thing is, right? When you're half using, that's not life. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to change my ideas, my, my perspective on my using from, oh my God, I'm such a piece of shit, I'm such a loser, I can't believe I did heroin too, Thank God I ended up on heroin and now I have this great, beautiful life that I would not have had. And it changed my, that's why I'm even like able to publicly speak about this. Mm -hmm. I would never have talked about any of this, but I came to this place where I became very grateful for the depths of darkness that heroin took me to because now I actually have gratitude for life and I would not have lived that way. And I might've lived the rest of my life without ever getting arrested or any of that other stuff, Mm -hmm. but I would not have lived a life of joy and gratitude. And that's, that's what changed my entire perspective on my using. And this is what I wish to share with other people. The people that are listening that have been down like the dark ass roads, mm-hmm. you know, cause there are some dark roads out there. There's prostitution, there's solicitation. There's, you know, my friend Tommy that we're going to have on as a guest robbed a bank and went to prison. I mean, there's some dark shit out there. And one of the main things that stops you from coming back is feeling, how can I have lived in that darkness and then assimilate with the rest of the world again like a normal person I can't I'm not normal I'm always going to be this person and what I want to share is that it's it doesn't have to be a bad thing I am so glad for all of that darkness because I don't have to live a half-life anymore I get to live a life that's full of like feeling and awe and wonder and joy mm-hmm. because of heroin mm-hmm. heroin saved my life right, <laughs> and, like- and, I, and I wouldn't recommend for anyone to do it like obviously of course not <laughs> but it's but heroin saved my life it changed my life for the better because like you said, it was heroin that brought you all these consequences yes. into your life, arrests, losing jobs, losing relationships, yeah. friends. But that's what kind of brought you to this place of, I don't want that life. Right. Whereas the other thing, like you said, you weren't having major consequences. Right. In your eyes. Right. In my eyes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my life was a train wreck, but it was, it was livable, mm-hmm. you know. And heroin even brought me to you, in fact... My old, I think I started to tell you this, and she listens to this podcast, so she'll hear this. My roommate in LA, prior to living with my ex, listens to the podcast. We connected at some point, and we spoke last week. She actually called me on Sunday night. She messaged me and said, hey, I listen to your podcast. I want to talk. And we had reconnected at some point, like, I don't know, a year and a half ago. We ended our we lived together for a few years and it we ended our roommate relationship in like a blaze of glory and and she moved out and I I had been pissed for years because she gave notice to our landlord and I wasn't on the lease Mm -hmm. so giving notice as the person on the lease we all had to move out I could have applied for the lease but he was going to increase the rent and I definitely couldn't get a lease in my name I had horrible credit Mm -hmm. so all these years I was like, I felt like I was the one that was kind of wronged. I knew my behavior hadn't been great because I was using in the apartment all the time. But I felt like I was the one that was wronged. And then a year and a half ago or so, I friended her on Facebook. She saw I was in recovery. She reached out to me and was like, oh my God, I'm so proud of you, whatever. So we had like sort of reconnected. She called me last week. And we had this great conversation. We spoke for a long time. 
And one of the things that she said, though, that just made me so embarrassed was she said jokingly, do you remember how you didn't used to pay parking tickets ever? Mm-hmm. And I know it's – and I've kind of forgotten about that. I don't think it's that uncommon. You don't? No. Okay. So I had – I refused to pay them mm-hmm. ever. And eventually my car got towed. My license eventually got suspended from it. Mm-hmm. But – when she said that, it reminded me, and she and I would like yell and scream about getting them and not pay them because I was just like a rage machine my whole twenties. I was so angry all the time, mm-hmm. and she reminded me of that, and it reminded me again. I look back in the early heroin recovery days. I would look back to my pre-heroin recovery days, like mm-hmm. oh my god, it was so much better before. But that's another example of. I did not take care of anything and I felt entitled, which is a real addict quality. The rules don't apply to me because I bet, I bet you pay parking tickets. Do you not? I do. Okay. There we go. See? I'm a big rule follower. I know you are. Okay. But like human beings are supposed, we're all involved in the same social contract, but it's only drug addicts are like, fuck that. I didn't pay in that. Like I was like, drug, um, parking tickets are for suckers. Paying taxes is for suckers. I didn't pay taxes until as you know, like a few years ago, right. I finally started paying taxes again. I didn't pay them for like 10 years because I thought you didn't really have to. Mm-hmm. And actually what I kind of thought was, and if you're a drug addict out there listening, you're probably laughing and I hope you're laughing because I know you've thought the same shit. What I believed was one day I will become super rich and famous oh. and I will take care of everything at that point. Of course. Yes. That was for real my plan. So when I quit paying taxes at some point, I was like, oh, it doesn't matter. One day I'm going to be like really rich. And I'll just do all and the I, back taxes yeah, and I'll have all these... And I'm going to take care. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going I'm I'm to have so much money that none of that will matter. I don't know how I'm going to get rich because I'm a Coke addict, <laughs> drug addict, who can't, who's my Saturn. My Saturn is blowing up because <laughs> I'm not paying to change the oil because I'm buying cocaine. But one day I will be rich and famous and I will pay for all these things. And that's a super like addiction mentality. Was there also that idea of, um, so all of these things, who cares? I'm entitled. But also, ugh, why am I getting all these fees? Why is my car oh, blowing up? Yes. All these horrible things also happened to me. Yes. Like the, I guess the victim. A idea. little bit of a victim mentality. Yeah. In fact, I remember in college, and again, and all of this speaks to a mentality that heroin rid me of. Mm-hmm. In college, before Coke or drinking, I mean, I drank a little, but before Coke, like 18. So the University of Georgia is huge. Mm-hmm. And you have, to dr- you have to drive to a parking structure and then take a bus to your class. To class mm-hmm. And that entire process, I just loathed and hated and didn't want to do because it was a big pain in my ass. And you had to leave like an hour before class. I wasn't built for college at that time, but I really didn't want to do any of that. Mm-hmm. So what I would do is I was always late and there was a spot up on the sidewalk mm-hmm. under the stairs, right by where the bus picked you up that I would drive my car onto, up onto the sidewalk, jump the curb, park my car, take the bus to class, come back. One day I came back and my car wasn't there. Uh-oh. It had been towed, obviously, because I was parked on a sidewalk, like in front of a vending machine. Like, not even like a wide sidewalk where you could mistake it for a park. It'd be like if I parked right here in front of the studio, okay? Like, jumped the curb, blocking a water vending machine and a candy vending machine right up underneath stairs. Like, people walking by like, who the fuck is this asshole? And that yeah. was me, because I was always running late when I did go to class. 
And when I called, I still remember, and I'm embarrassed about it now, when I called the tow company, this is what I said. Y'all take my car. <laughs> oh, because your accent was... I had sort of an accent. Your maybe thicker then. Yeah, yeah. But I was like, y'all took my car. You took my car. Not that I was an asshole who was late to class. And like, that was how I moved through the world. And when my roommate reminded me of that, screaming about parking tickets... It was bad because I got really embarrassed even on the phone with her. I was like, oh, like I wanted to like speed past that part of the conversation. But more than that, I got off the phone and I told Skylar, I was like, this reinforces everything that Kim and I are talking about on the podcast right now. I was a a train wreck all those years Mm -hmm. and heroin stopped me from being a train wreck. Like there's this trainer that I love that I talk about all the time, that lady Mandy, Mm -hmm. who used to say to get the body you want, you have to love the body you have. Mm -hmm. And I realized one of my times at Choices, to get the life you want, you have to love the life you have Mm -hmm. by taking care of it. Yeah. Even if it's a job you don't want yet, you have to go to it with integrity because you're not gonna move forward. And that was like the key ingredient in my life as an addict I was missing, that I needed to live the life that I was currently in if I wanted to move forward. And I just thought that things would magically speed up and move forward for me. And most other addicts that I know live in that same space. They just don't want to be right where they are. And it's like the sober, oh my God, sober living sucks. If you're listening to this and you live in sober living, you know. Sober living is the worst. And I lived in sober living forever. I could not, like, not, I lived in sober living for like five years. Homeless or sober living. And it's challenging to live in sober living. It's challenging to live in sober living. Most people have to do it. And there can be some benefits. Like, that's where I was the secretary at that meeting. That was mm-hmm. because I was at the sober living or whatever. But sober living is very, very challenging. But when you live there, you have, you live there for a reason. Mm-hmm. You didn't get to sober living on a winning streak, right. right? Like, great choices didn't get you there. And so I finally looked at that and lived in one for a full year and lived there with respect for the other people, mm-hmm. took care of things, didn't eat their food. Because in sober living, everybody's eating each other's food. It's mm-hmm. awful. You have to put notes on everything. <laughs> it's probably a pretty humbling experience. It's very humbling. Well, it, it's very humbling, especially given, you know, my background was so different. Mm-hmm. It's very humbling. And I didn't live in nice sober livings, right? Like, mm-hmm. Skylar lived in, like, really nice sober livings. Mm-hmm. And I did not live in nice sober livings. But I had to look at, and this last time I did, I, for one thing, I was actually grateful to even be there because no other sober livings would take me anymore except for my friend Steve. So I was grateful to be there. But I also took care of it as though it was a regular apartment because I realized if I want to get to a regular apartment, I got to show God that I can take care of the stuff I have. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't show anybody that I can take care of the stuff that I have, I'm not going to get anything new. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that took me like 34 years to figure out. Like yeah. if I want a better car, I need to change the oil on this one. Mm-hmm. But heroin is what brought me to all of those realizations, which is crazy. And talking to my roommate just reminded me of all of that. I was like, oh my God, I was such a train wreck long before any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Or like in college, getting my car towed. I was a train wreck at 19 before any of this stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think it'd be really interesting if you could give us a brief description um, for what, like, what is sober living? What's kind of the day-to-day? What does it look like in terms of where you stayed? And if you know about, as you said, quote, the nicer ones, yeah. <laughs> maybe what the differences yeah. would be. No, you're right, because most people probably, or a lot of people don't know what sober living is. Mm-hmm. So sober living is basically, it's typically a house where everybody that lives there is supposed to be sober, trying to be sober, 
often rehabs feed you into a specific sober living. Like choices had a sober living that I kept getting kicked out of, which is why I didn't live there. And then mm -hmm. I'd go live at this other one that we're talking about. But so depending on some of them are nice, some of them are not so nice, but there are, you share bedrooms. So there are bunk beds in each room. And okay. then depending on how much you pay, usually you can be in a room that's only got like two single beds or at some of the nicer ones, you can be in a single room. Mm -hmm. Again, I've never stayed at a nicer one, but so you share a room with other girls, you know, they're not co-ed obviously. And sometimes there's a little structure to it, but the idea is that it's less structured than rehab. So okay. like rehab, you have a structure, like you wake up in the morning at a certain time, they tell you when to wake up, you all eat breakfast together, whatever. You either, typically you take a van or a bus to like a meeting or you go somewhere where you have like groups, what you call groups, mm -hmm. um, where you talk about various like addiction principles. So that's pretty structured. They bring you home, you go to bed at a certain time. Usually you like can't leave. days-ish? Sometimes, well, days. yeah, it depends. Okay. Sometimes they're that, choices is four months is the one that I went to. The rehab. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I was at FRC for nine months. FRC was a much longer program. Mm -hmm. But the nicer, more expensive programs tend to only be 30 days. Okay. And then the state facilities are a little bit longer. And you would think it would actually be the opposite because mm -hmm. you're paying less. But like the ones that I went to that were uh, parole based mm -hmm. are longer because it's for a lot of people that are coming out of prison. So you check in with like your PO over time and okay. it's a transition program mm -hmm. also. But so rehab tends to be structured and sober living is your opportunity to just live and not be as structured but you're still accountable for being sober and that they can test you at any time. That, that's really the main thing about sober living. Mm -hmm. You live there, you pay rent, you can come and go as you please, you can do whatever you want, but they have the ability to drug test you at any time. Okay, Which, so you're not required to do anything. Um, it depends. I mean, there's probably a curfew or something. There's curfews in the beginning. There's usually a meeting requirement. Like, I think when I was at... Um, Docs, the place that I keep talking about, nobody calls it Docs anymore. That's way old school. I think it's called R&R, &R, so we're living now, but mm -hmm. we used to call it Docs. It was owned by this chiropractor. When I was at Docs, I, Steve had requirements for me because I was such a mess. Mm -hmm. Like, my curfew was like nine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I had to go to, I think, three meetings a week. So some sober livings are like that. And then they usually transition you the longer you live there. So if you live there for six months, they're like less strict about your meeting list. But typically when you first get there, mm -hmm. so you can go there straight out of a detox or straight out of a rehab, but it's, it's basically just, you know, life, mm -hmm. but you can get drug tested at any time and then get kicked out if you test. Positive. Yes. Yes. Okay. I mean, not necessarily it depends on if it's zero tolerance or not. Mm -hmm. Usually you get tested if you're high once they'll sit you down and have a house meeting and everybody yells at you. And, and this is where sober living gets crazy. Like it's all a bunch of people with three weeks, four weeks, mm -hmm. eight weeks clean and sober. People are at various stages of recovery, right? Various stages of life. You'll get some like really wealthy woman who's just there for a month. She was drinking too much. Mm -hmm. And then there might be me who was homeless you know, so it's, it's a pretty wide variety of people that live there. Um, but yeah, so basically that's sober living. It's just shared living, but it can be challenging. There's a lot of drama in sober living because it's all you have. Skylar and I actually talk, Skylar and I were talking about this the other day. Um, cause when, when he and I have sponsees, often they're still in rehab and sober living and there's just so much bullshit and drama because it's your whole world, especially if you were coming from a pretty low point of using. Mm -hmm. So what happens in the house is a really big deal, even though to you and I right now, it might sound like, Oh my God, like, how is that really happening? Like, you know, somebody ate your food and you are flipping, the f you know what I mean? Yeah. Somebody is flipping out about it. 
So, so that's based, that's sober yeah. living. That makes complete sense to me because if you're coming and you've had nothing. Yes. And your, your one thing was a muffin. Right. That yes. is going to set you off. You're right. You're like, right. I bought that or you're right. I'm working all these hours to pay the rent. Like that would be hard or someone's yeah. taking your stuff. Someone's taking when your you stuff. Have I've lost so, so much stuff at Sober Living. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. I've had, I like so much like, you know, cause I would typically bring all my stuff with me, which you're not really supposed to do, but I'd bring clothes and jewelry and I had worked and during that time in Venice that I'm talking about, I worked at a really nice boutique in LA. And so I had some nice things mm -hmm. and almost all of it was stolen from me in Sober Living. Now that's not always the case. Again, I stayed at some really janky places mm -hmm. at you know, I don't want to give sober living a bad rap and say you're going to get all your stuff stolen. That was just, you know, like my experience. Yeah. But, you know, it's just a challenging time. It sucks to be an adult and share a bunk bed. Like I said, humbling for sure. It's humbling. Mm -hmm. And you're still in that space often where it's hard to believe that this is my fault. Mm -hmm. You know, but it is my fault. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, here I'm living here. Everybody smokes. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's tough. Yeah. And I smoked. Don't get me wrong. If you're listening to this, I'm, I'm not saying anything bad. I smoked for way too long, given my profession. <laughs> like, way too long. Like, until I met Skylar. <laughs> so, not saying anything negative about smoking. Because I, I, I would smoke. And I was so broke. I would smoke other people's cigarette butts. It's like when you knew me, dude. When I was living in Sober Living. I would pull butts out of the ashtrays. And smoke them. What sometimes when this is like when I first started when, psychology. When you tell me things, I'm like, I try to close my eyes and picture it because it's so out of what it's I like bizarre. I know. I can't even even a cigarette, which is not a huge deal, right? I don't know. I'm well, that's good because I'm, I'm your I'm your Sandy trainer from Greece. Yeah, yeah. When she turns at the end, that's so. And funny. She's in all black. Yeah. That's what I'm picturing. It wasn't quite that classy. I was usually wearing like used Uggs. <laughs> <laughs> like whatever shirt I had fished out of the there's always at choices there's this place called the crack shack mm -hmm. and it's where they donate stuff where you can go get clothes so every time I got into choices they'd be like do you need to go to the crack shack I was like yes because I didn't have anything so you go to the crack shack and and pull clothes out mm -hmm. so yeah it was not Sandy from Greece it was me in Uggs with like some dreadlocks glasses missing one lens smoking the butt end of a cigarette that I picked up off the ground oh man <laughs> Yeah, it's hard for me to picture. Yeah. Um, Good. <laughs> but, yeah, I think... What, Good. I'm glad you're not like, I can totally <laughs> yeah, see that. I see this. You're not that far off. Yeah, exactly. Um, you kind of alluded to this before, but the, the idea of entitlement, and I've met both of your parents. Yes. I, I would say, I know your mom much better than your dad. I've yeah. met your dad really briefly, but... Um, where did that come from, I guess? Because I just don't imagine your parents putting up with it as like no. a young child. Not at all. Overindulging you so that you were like a spoiled bride. No, don't not at all. Vision it. Yeah, no, not at all. That's actually a really good question. Not at all. So the town that I grew up in was definitely an affluent town, like an entitled town. I, mm -hmm. I could make a strong case that some of the other kids that grew up there were spoiled, mm -hmm. but we definitely were not. We definitely were not. My parents, I'm actually really proud of my parents. They, you know, they worked really hard to come up from where they grew up. Mm -hmm. And they continued to raise us with those values of, like, hard work. And I got a car when I was 16. 
I had to pay for half of it. I'm actually not sure if I ever did. I'm afraid to ask either of them. Now my mom will listen to this and let me yeah. know. You'll I kind of think I didn't, but I'm not sure. You'll be getting an invoice soon. Yeah, I was working <laughs> at my church nursery babysitting, and I was uh-huh. definitely supposed to pay for half. I had a Honda Accord. I was definitely supposed to pay for half of it. I think I actually asked my dad once, and he was like, yeah, you paid me for that. You paid me. But my dad sometimes remembers me a little better than I was, yeah. which is nice. But that's my cool. mom that was the, the car everybody though. wanted. Yes, everybody, everybody wanted, wanted the Honda Accord. Honda Accord. Yes, <laughs> and that's the one that I had, and it even had a sunroof. That's, that's I know. I, did not have that, but everybody I know. Wanted the Honda I was super Accord. stoked. I was super stoked to get that car. Um, so, but I was supposed to pay for it. I had a job, and they definitely did not raise me with a sense of entitlement at all. I think that was partially from the neighborhood that I grew up in, but mm-hmm. then also. And the reason I think this is a good question is, and if you're listening to this and you're somebody that's an addict alcoholic, you may recognize this tendency. Entitlement is, I believe, a genetic component of addiction because I, I really fully believe that addiction is, you have a predilection towards it. There can be a catalyst, like mm-hmm. you and I were talking about. There can be an event that sends you on a different path that maybe you weren't necessarily going to go on. But I believe, like we were saying last week, the average person doesn't just try heroin, mm-hmm. but there was something in my brain that went, yeah, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. And addiction and alcoholism are really prevalent in my family. And that entitlement idea, I think, is part of being an addict. Also, and this is why I'm just a big fan of addicts in general. I'm a big fan of drug addicts. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons why is addicts tend to be intelligent. You know this from working mm-hmm. with drug addicts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they get a bad rap, but a lot of drug addicts are actually pretty smart. And... I think the entitlement comes naturally when you're growing up and you're young and you're in school and you're advanced and things are actually easier. Things were actually easier for me in school. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to study as hard and I would like get a better grade. That goes away as you get older. By the time I hit college, that's like no longer the case, which is sort of where I started to backslide a little because it wasn't as easy anymore. But so I think it was a combination of doing well in school without really having to try very hard. I did have this great upbringing. As much as they tried for us to not be entitled, we still lived in a really nice place. Mm-hmm. We went on, you know, my dad's a pilot, so we went on these great trips every year. So they tried hard to keep us grounded, but I think my surroundings lent themselves to a certain amount of entitlement anyway. Mm-hmm. But most of the kids I went to high school with worked really hard through college, so you know they would actually probably argue that. I think it's mostly just an addiction genetic component. I, I just sort of had that in me. Mm-hmm. And... I definitely recognize that in friends of mine that are addicts also. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something to look out for. Like if you're listening to this and you think like, yeah, I kind of got that going on too. I think things should be easier than they are. Mm-hmm. I think that's a sign. Yeah. And coupled with the, why do all these horrible things happen to me? Right. Or right. When yeah. Why should my car yeah. not have gotten to Also, there was a bigger question there, which mm-hmm. is you're not prepared because you are always running late. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> that was a big question that I didn't want to face. You know, mm-hmm. like it was just all of these things that were all my fault that were happening that were all my fault but here's the good news about that like I don't want to sound like I'm just bagging on addicts or being like lazy entitled pieces of shit (laughs) here's the good news about that when it's all my fault it's all in my control to change definitely I became someone that's on time I have the work ethic that I that I showed here at the studio is why I own it now Mm -hmm. because I was just here all the time meeting the clients establishing those relationships making myself super important and now I own it. That was the next natural step and mm-hmm. that transition that I was the one that would take over at the studio. And I developed that work ethic, again, as a direct result to doing heroin and losing everything and going, oh, my God, I've lived like an asshole for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Right. And kind of circles back to what your ex had told you, which yes. is 
you, you can get away yes. with this for a long time. You can time. get away with it for a long Yes, that's it. Yes, exactly. You can get away with this for a long time, mm-hmm. but you're not going to be living the life that you could mm-hmm. because you've, you're living a half-life, you know, where you're one foot in the door of using and one foot not. And it's, yeah, it's just a half-life and there's no real progression there. And that's the other thing. If it, it, For anyone that's listening to this, it's like, well, maybe I drink too much. You know, I don't know. Maybe I don't. To me, anything that immobilizes you, and I think I said this on our very first episode, whether or not it's like an eating issue or a relationship that you know is holding you back, anything that immobilizes you, I think is a key to what's an issue that I can deal with in my life to live a fuller life. I hate the expression, live my best life. Mm-hmm. It's just so cliche and basic, but I'm going to use it here. Okay. I definitely was not living I'll forgive my best you. life. I was... As my husband knows, I hate cliches, but I'll yeah. forgive you for that one. Okay, thank you. <laughs> no, because it does make sense. Like, yeah. like you said, you can't, what did you say about love the body? You, you oh, to get the body you want, you have to love the body you have. To get the life you want, you have to love the life you have, which means taking care of it, which means paying taxes and like showing up for things on time Mm -hmm. because, you know, just like the body you want isn't magically going to show up. The life you want isn't magically going to show up if you don't put the work in now. And I was unable to do that work prior to being a heroin addict. It was only after I got completely clean and sober from all mind and mood altering substances that I was able to become somebody Mm -hmm. that showed up for things on time and cared. And like you said, that didn't happen until you realized, okay, right now, maybe it's not the body I want, but I've got to love what I have so that I can get there. I, I don't love this life, right? but I have to love and take care of what I have to yes. get to the life that yes. I really want. Yes. And that really did manifest for me in the sober living too. Mm-hmm. I looked down in the first few, I didn't look down. That's, that's a harsh way to say it. That's not true. The first few times I was moving through social living, I felt very different from the other people that live there. And I think everyone that lives in sober living feels this way. I'm sure this is not unique. We all feel like we're not really supposed to be there. Right. But this last round in sober living, I thought, yeah, exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. I have to take care of the space as though it is my own and be nice to these people and, and show them some respect mm-hmm. and learn from them, which I actually did. Right. And like we keep saying, it was humbling. But for you to, I think I'm assuming that happens a lot. I've seen it happen with like some of the the youth that I've worked with on probation that have to go to juvenile hall, like that idea of, quote, I don't belong here. Right. I'm not going to get anything from this. I wasn't raised to do this versus, wow, I've made some decisions that have gotten me here. I need to do the programming, take what I can get from it, realize that am I that different from this person sitting next to me? Right. We all had struggles and I got to get my shit together and grow from this experience, whether or not, you're really rich, you're white, you're black, you're Hispanic. We're all in this thing together and we can learn from each other and I'm not better or worse off. Right, right. Yeah. One of the key benefits of this story too, I would hope for anybody listening to this, is regardless of whether or not you're somebody in recovery, the heartbreak aspect of this breakup with this particular guy, you guys, I was, I was devastated on the floor, devastated for a long time. This is vulnerable to share, but I'm just going to share it anyways. The first thing I thought every morning when I woke up for a while, I would literally like look at the space next to me and think, he's not here. 
he's not here. That was my first thought every morning. And I felt like this emptiness and this pain inside me for a while. And I truly thought that I'd lost the love of my life. And if you are in a sober living, sometimes you're in the sober living because somebody has kicked you out of your regular house and that's why you're there. So if you're listening, you might be going through a breakup or still recovering from one. And I want to share you guys, oh my gosh, I thought that I would never recover. And I was so, so wrong. I've been way wrong about a few things in my lifetime that I can admit. And this was one of them. I was way, way wrong. I thought there wasn't room in my heart for any more people. I thought that I was done. And not only did I, I'll share this, I had two more heartbreaks coming, but then I met my husband, Skylar, who is the most perfect choice for me ever in the entire world. And we are on the same path in every single way. And I also want to add here that in no alternate unit, like in no world that makes logical sense, do Skylar and I meet. We're from different coasts. We are different ages. We pursue different interests when we were young. We only meet in recovery. We met at a meeting of Heroin Anonymous, and that is the only way I would have come across him. And like I was saying earlier, man, it was divinely scripted. And I, if you had caught me back then, I would have told you, no, this is the end of me. I'm heartbroken. So if you're out there and you're experiencing a heartbreak, I promise you, this is not the end of your story. This is not the end of your story. I ended up getting get married at 38 you know? So that's one of the other reasons why I choose to share this story in particular. If you're in early recovery or not, and you know what it feels like to be heartbroken, I promise it's not the end of you. It's not the end of your story. It's not. Okay. So before we wrap up, I just want to make sure I get back to, you know, as you guys know, the main premise of this podcast is to flip the lens that we view some of the events from our past in And that night when that guy said that to me, if you had stopped me and asked me what was going on with me, I would have told you that my life was a nightmare. I was devastated. I was sad. Everything was a train wreck. But what I got out of that moment was something so beautiful and so powerful. It stays with me to this day. And, you know, I don't know that you could find him somewhere saying that those moments were beautiful and powerful for him. I don't know, maybe. But for me, I'm glad that that night happened. I'm glad those words were spoken to me. I share them with other addicts now. And again, my, our, our whole point in doing this is I want to impress upon anyone that the chaos and the darkness from our addiction is not necessarily chaotic and dark. But when you look back, it was like divinely scripted and powerful and beautiful and elevates our life now to such a new height. And that is probably of all the stories you guys are going to hear on this podcast that moment in my life might have been one of the most life-altering moments ever. And again, at that time, if you had asked me, I would have told you that my life was a train wreck and not seen anything good about that moment. But it's now a story I love to share. Definitely. And I think, too, it, it goes to show, like, so many times we're saying things maybe casually or yeah. off the cuff, and it's having a huge impact on yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. So, well, thank you guys again so much for listening. If you listen on iTunes, please rate and review. And also, if you guys are listening and you know someone that is in recovery that you think could get a message of hope out of this podcast, please, please, please feel free to share it. And again, you can reach out to us through Instagram. My Instagram is at Janine Coulter. The podcast Instagram, which I'm just now building, is at Chasing Heroin, heroin with an E. Kim's Instagram is at kcap524. Her Instagram is private. She's a therapist. But if you send her a direct message, she will see it. 
You can also go to the Chasing Heroin website and submit a form to us if you guys have any questions or comments about anything. And yeah, we'll see you next time. Oh, I'm so excited. Our next show, we're going to have our guest. My friend Tommy will be our first guest on the show. And he's got some harrowing tales that will be fun to hear and and we'll we'll delve into that and and get into his psyche a little bit Definitely. so Looking all right to it. yeah thank, thank you, you guys so much